Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. My name is Laura Hersher. I'm your host. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae. I want to talk today about uh, abortion, the changes in abortion law, the big changes this summer, and how they will affect us as a clinical community. I've been thinking about this, obviously been thinking about this quite a lot, but in thinking in preparation for this program, I started to think about how uh, in January 1973, when Roe was decided, I was 11 years old, soon to turn 12, which made me literally the first generation of girls in this country that hit puberty knowing that a pregnancy was not going to derail my life. And palpably, though I was 11 and I had <laughs> a limit to what I understood or thought, but I tell you, I felt in my bones, no matter how many times my parents told me my brother and I should have the same ambitions, they tried to raise us the same way, how I felt in my bones, the vulnerability of being a woman before or girl, of what it was to be a girl and to know that all of that risk came to you. And you just knew you couldn't be the same. You could not be the same. It, it wasn't just about the horror stories, although I am just old enough to remember the coat hanger stories and the, the political action and, and, and how upsetting it was. But viscerally, just the sense that girls and boys could never have the same life to look forward to without this protection. And so at this point in my life, to see it stripped away is an incredibly emotional thing. So now Roe is gone and we are all just at the very beginning of the exploration, really, of what that means for us and what vulnerabilities will be exposed by that absence. But for my audience, I want to talk about the legal risks and quest big questions about whether or not we should change in some ways the way that we practice medicine or whether we should not change the way we practice medicine. And there are enormous questions here. And anybody who tells you they have all the answers is just lying because so much of this has not yet been worked out in the courts. What's really going to be allowed and what really is or not just the courts, but the laws themselves. Anyway, so here we are, a field in need of some serious legal advice, uh, which is why Earlier this summer, I was very interested to see an article in JAMA by law professors Michelle Mello and Katie Spector Baghdadi talking about how to protect the privacy of medical records in a post-Roe age. And this, I thought, sounds like information uh, just as valuable for genetic counselors as it is for doctors. And I'm delighted that co-author Michelle Mello is joining us today for this conversation. Welcome, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Michelle Mello is a professor of law at Stanford Law School and a professor of health policy at Stanford Medical School. And her work, unsurprisingly, looks at the intersection of health, law, and ethics. She's written on many topics related to medical privacy and public health law. And I have to imagine that Dobbs pretty much hijacked your summer the way it did mine. Well, it was a nice change from COVID. <laughs> That's truly the most upbeat thing I've heard anybody say about that. You know, we take humor where we can find it these days, right? <laughs> so you and Katie Spector-Baghdadi published a piece in JAMA discussing the risks associated with information in the medical record, because that might be used to prosecute the patient or a provider. Um, 
can you give us some sort of primer under what conditions law enforcement has access to information in the medical record? First for individual patients and then for institutions. Sure. So, you know, I'll start with the lawyer's answer, which is it varies from state to state, uh, as do, do most things related to health law. Um, but the upshot is this. Um, there's really not any federal privacy law that will protect against having to disgorge this information in response to an investigative demand. And by that, I mean a warrant, an administrative subpoena or uh, other uh you know, demand connected with a criminal prosecution or civil legal action. So, you know, we can talk about the range of misapprehensions of what HIPAA, our main federal health information privacy law covers, but this is one of the many, many times where people think HIPAA protects more than it does. It, it, it has a, an exception for law enforcement uses. So it doesn't provide a shield that a provider, you know, either a, a clinician or a facility can um, sort of get behind and, and resist those demands. So that leaves state law. And um, there are a couple aspects of state law that are relevant. But the one that's most important has to do with the scope of protections for physician-patient communications, um, protections against use of that evidence in legal proceedings. Um, all states have some degree of protection for that, but there's really pretty wide variation in what it covers and under what circumstances, to the point where, um, you know, I could, I could not conclude that those laws could be counted on to shield having to disgorge this information. And indeed, there are many, many cases in which a patient's, a person's medical records have been used as evidence in a criminal prosecution against them to help convict them of a crime. So if I'm getting this, just to, to see if I understand correctly, what you're saying is there's a concern about how information in the medical record could be used to prosecute a patient. And I assume also in some of these states, a a practitioner to to prosecute a practitioner yes, prosecute a practitioner yes and there you know the legal protections might be even more slender because you know it's not self incrimination in the same way for example so fifth amendment protections would not be available either um so yes both are vulnerable to having this information discovered and wielded and also what you're saying is if you're concerned, you should know your own state laws and maybe talk to lawyers associated with your institution. To yeah, you should state. ask your counsel, your institutional counsel, to explain your state's laws to you. You know, one of my um, <laughs> pet peeves is too trivial a word, but one of my sources of discomfort when thinking about this issue is how little uh, the lawyers have stepped in to fill this void of uncertainty that clinicians have about what what happens to them post-dobs, you know, that they should be right there with the explainers helping their clinicians understand what the law does or might do, what it doesn't do, and what the institution is prepared to do to back them up. Yes, I think that's really important. And then also I'm sympathetic to people who maybe feel like the the law, the what's allowed and what's not allowed is like moving under their feet and they feel nervous about saying anything. Mm. 
because of all the right there's so many new laws coming into effect but also getting challenged and pieces of them getting thrown out and so on i don't think anybody really knows exactly where we're going to shake out um which is unfortunate because i think then everybody tends to be well i want to get to that in a minute but everybody tends to be defensive but but first i there was something in the article that it was really interesting because i hadn't thought about it at all which is that you're saying in addition to individual patient information prosecutors or law enforcement could look at hospital practices and for that they might not be able to see individual level data but they could look at like search your emails if you use an university an institutional email yeah did i get that right yeah i mean the nightmare scenario for most women is the idea of an individual pregnant person being prosecuted for seeking an abortion but um, most states right now are instead targeting abortion providers. And so the like the more likely scenario is that we're talking about a prosecution of an individual clinician or an institution. And so the concern might be that if a state law enforcer had suspicions about what people in a you know, outpatient clinic or um, hospital OB department were up to that they could get into um, the email and text chains from that institution and listen to chatter along the lines of what's happening in a lot of institutions right now, which is what's going on? What's our game plan? How are we going to protect our patients? What are we doing? Mm -hmm. Right. Um, This is how uncertain I feel things Think things are. You were mentioning in the article, which I think is great advice, that you might that you might want to say to reproductive age patients: be careful what sort of information you put online, i.e., pregnancy tracking apps and so on, um, because that might become available information in the case of an aggressive prosecution. Um, but also. I can tell you from speaking to counselors that they're worried about kind of subjects they can bring up with their patients, because if that reproductive age patient is pro the abortion bans, they might also sort of see that as not pushing an abortion, but like, you know, in a conversation around abortion as if you were suggesting it. Mm. And people are very nervous on both sides of the desk. Well, I imagine that that's a long-standing anxiety that many counselors would have, and you know, just we we always want to using we, but I'm not a clinician, but wh- I would imagine that a physician or other clinician always wants to try to sort of pitch a clinical discussion with a patient to what you know where the patient is at or where she thinks she's at, and so you know whether we're talking about vaccinating children or abortion or any other controversial intervention, you would want to choose your words carefully. What's new here is the legal risk, you know, that however much clinicians might always have feared awkwardness or embarrassment or alienating patients or even losing patients because they approach these conversations in kind of a tone-deaf way, uh, now there's a pretty big additional anxiety for them related to their own Liberty. Yeah, I mean, I've talked to counselors who've been operating in Texas over the last year in essentially post-Dobbs conditions, pre-Dobbs, and they they like, well, I I don't want to shortchange my patients in terms of what information I offer them. I'm also afraid I'm being taped. You know, I'm afraid I could be taped in conversations. It's a 
it's really a dilemma. Yeah, well, the taping issue is an interesting wrinkle, and I've actually, you know, you know, thought about this some and written about it elsewhere, just in in general, and thinking about the role of recording in clinical conversations. And I think the advice that that we gave in that analysis, you know, has new salience now, which is that, um, you know, we ought to get a lot more um, open in clinician-patient conversations about whether recording is permissible and under what circumstances and how it may end up being used. And, you know, historically, the concern has been that patients going to use this information somehow to support a malpractice claim or something against the clinician. But um, now there's this additional concern that it's going to somehow be discoverable and admissible in a, um, a public uh, enforcement proceeding. So it's all, all that by way of saying, you know, if that's a concern that people have, you know, there are, it's already been some thinking by me and others about how to approach it. And, you know, that is one thing that is controllable. You know, what, 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 what would you suggest? You know, to have a policy at the institution about patient recording that um, sort of lays out when and when it is or is not okay and makes the decision about that kind of at the facility level so individual clinicians aren't put in the difficult position of having to say no out of, you know, fear about their personal concern. Um, but also recognizes that patients in many cases have valid reasons for wanting to make recordings. Uh, and, and the goal would really be to get both parties to sort of discuss and understand what legal risks might arise from those recordings. If the patient is recording you on a phone call or in person and they don't tell you, that's a state-by-state state thing of whether or not that's legal? Yeah, I'm not an expert in this area of law. There's there's federal law that's relevant, but there is also state law. So it's certainly the case that in, in, not, all, in not all states do we have the right to um, feel safe that that's not going to take place. Yeah also uncomfortable. Uh, so let's talk about another changing law that that um, sort of uh, altering circumstances for people in, I think it was Mississippi. I think it was Mississippi. No, it was Georgia. Georgia recently said that, well, under a personhood concept, a fetus is a human, though you can claim them on your tax. You can you can claim them as a tax dependent. I, I'm not quite sure how they're planning to have that play out. But they said somebody, I think they, they, there was an outcry saying, well, if they're, they're a person, I guess they should be a tax deduction. And they're like, okay, they're a tax deduction. But if, if we're taking very seriously in some states this idea of fetal or even embryonic personhood, um, suddenly what has already happened on a small scale, this idea of like, okay, how you behave during pregnancy could be murder, could be um, uh, what you call manslaughter instead of other penalties. So this sort of penalizing or criminalizing pregnancies. Do you see that as a real issue? You know, I think I see it somewhere in between a possibility and a, you know, concern. Um, I'm always overly optimistic about what state <laughs> legislatures so are going to The last few years haven't worked out so well for you. Yeah. Uh, but certainly it creates the legal foundation to um, not just 
pass new laws, but to use existing laws in new ways. And I think for me, that latter thing is the bigger worry because, you know, it does take a certain amount of momentum and frankly guts for a legislature to do something like say, you know, from now on, any consumption of alcohol during pregnancy is child abuse. But you can do a lot kind of under the radar just by using your existing law enforcement authority. An attorney general or a district attorney can decide to bring an action under the state's existing child abuse statutes as redefined by some other law like a fetal personhood law or decision. And, um, you know, it's it's harder for the democratic process to try to resist something like that because there isn't this the 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 same sort of accountability mechanisms that that uh, inhere in the legislative process where things get hearings and so forth don't don't tend to happen. So I think that is is more of a concern for me. But certainly the anecdotes in this area are really chilling. And um, actually there was a um, really sobering profile of some of the defendants in these cases in today's Washington Post that I, I would uh, recommend to listeners. Um, some of the older cases, you know, one, for example, involving a, a woman named Regina McKnight that I've been teaching in public health ethics classes probably for 15 years now, um, but some more modern cases as well. And, you know, the typical fact pattern is a woman who um, is uh, has substance abuse disorder and uh, becomes pregnant and then there is a stillbirth or there is a, a, a live birth with a serious problem um, and the state's child abuse and neglect laws are used for um, purposes of criminal prosecution and are used successfully. So um, it has happened. Uh, not surprisingly, it tends to happen most to poor women and women of color. And so um, there is cause for concern about that. The other concern, of course, that people have about fetal personhood laws is that they push the can down the road a little bit more towards making it possible for states to ban post-conceptional birth control methods like Plan B. And again, the optimist in me wants to say, well, you know, there's a lot of men out there who have a vested interest in making sure good birth control remains available widely and easily. So maybe this sort of thing won't happen. But um, I think we're learning never to say never. Uh, well, it's my experience. First of all, just to go back, because today is not a good referent for for people who, who are actually not listening to us in real time. So we will uh, link to that article on the website. Um, today is August 1st, though, if you want to look it up yourself. And yeah, but I think with all of this, what we're finding is that it's not a matter of if men don't really want it to happen, it won't happen, but more if they can make these laws happen and the consequences accrue only to the more vulnerable people in the population and they can actually opt out of consequences. I think that's one of the big problems here is that the people who have enough power to make these laws also have it with the resources to opt out of the consequences of the laws they're making. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, some of them, I think, you know, I tend to sort of discount things if they're going to, for instance, make IVF impossible. They're not going to do that. It's like Oklahoma. They passed a law that said you cannot have an abortion. An abortion is defined as creating conception at the moment of conception. And then somebody nudged them in the ribs and said, that mm. without IVF. And they went back and they said, at the mm. moment of conception, when the embryo is in the uterus, like it's a meaningless distinction. If that's what you believe, that conception is that moment, the magic. But 
they weren't ruling out IVF. It has a lot of money behind it, and they like it. So, yeah. I wanted to say also about this, the second half of the comments you made. I think that these cases are horrific. And as you say, they happen more to vulnerable individuals than to other individuals. And I don't want to – but you don't – They maybe they won't happen often. But it, it doesn't really have to happen often if the threat of it is there and people perceive it. Because I've already had counselors tell me that they have people – coming in and once they sort of trust them telling things that oh, I didn't want to put that on my intake information, whether it was like exposures during pregnancy, <laughs> things that are important to know. Yeah, because they're they're nervous. They don't know. Um, and you can undermine a lot of good health care with just sort of an anxiety over what might happen, even if it doesn't happen very often. Absolutely. And that, you know, if there's one thing we know about physicians from two decades of research on medical liability, it's that when there's legal uncertainty, you can count on them to be very, very cautious. Well, the, the system doesn't incentivize them, right? To yeah. not be cautious. Yeah. Every incentive pushes in that direction. Yeah. So you said this, uh, this is from the article, clinicians should not presume that more clinical documentation is always better for managing medical legal risk, a, a, a one word, medical port, portmanteau word I had not heard before, medical legal risk. Recording less information may be more protective and prevent information from being used in unwanted ways. For example, not speculating about whether a miscarriage was spontaneous when a patient presents in the emergency department with vaginal bleeding. Well, this would come up very often for genetic counselors in documenting previous pregnancy outcomes. Uh, do you think also for previous pregnancy outcomes, there's ways in which that could be used? Well, if what you're recording is the manner in which the pregnancy ended and that was not you know, a live birth or a stillbirth, yeah, yeah, I can see that coming up. Um, so, you know, maybe you're going to ask me next if, if genetic counselors should stop recording that information. And I, I'm not going to venture an opinion on that. But but what I will say, what we did say in the article is that clinicians ought to ask themselves the following questions before they write this stuff down. Does it need to be in the medical record to assure good quality care now and in the future? to support our facilities claims for reimbursement or to comply with other legal directives? And if the answer to all of those three questions is no or maybe not, you know, it's important to think twice about the risks and benefits of recording it. This is making my head spin because I train genetic counselors and we talk so much about documentation. Documentation is supposed to make things safer. You know, documentation is how you protect yourself, and also documentation is best practices, right? So there's so many ways in which you are going to assure better care for your patients down the road if everything is documented. But, you know, so when somebody comes in for their first appointment or an early appointment, a preconception appointment maybe, and you're discussing with them, even right to that point, you're discussing with them, is it a good idea for them to spend money on carrier testing? Well, the truth is, what are you going to do with that information? So if you're entirely opposed to terminating a pregnancy and you don't have the money for IVF, you may be throwing your money away by doing carrier screening. And that's out-of-pocket money for the most part. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, it would be good practices to initiate a conversation right then and there about how they're planning to use that information, right? But 
that's very that turns into sensitive information where you're essentially saying to them, are you opposed to terminating a pregnancy? Are you interested in terminating a pregnancy? Well, I mean, but could you say could you say here here's here's this test that we can do and this is the information that it gives us and um, the options if it were to come back positive would be X, Y and Z. So hearing all of that, is this something that you are interested in doing? That invites an answer that is clearest to the clinical next step and un- purposefully unclear as to the reason why that next step is or is not being taken. Yeah, I feel like that sort of it's a good answer, but it's also an answer that's least help- helpful to the lowest information patient. You know, you're giving them the least guidance. Like if you if it were you and I was having this conversation with you, I wouldn't need to have this conversation with you because you would come in already knowing what you wanted, why you wanted it and so on. But let's pretend that you did and We could have this conversation and you would get my insinuation. Mm. But isn't it the case that for many of these conditions, among the reasons for doing it, even if one would not consider terminating the pregnancy, would be to prepare for the life of of parenting such a child. This is true, but you're talking about a test that to be helpful ends up usually needing to be done by both prospective parents Mm -hmm. and is maybe $250 per test. It varies a little bit by the test, but having having joyfully paid for this for a couple of my grown children, I can tell you that it's a round and about number. So it's a lot of money. And probably it's not going to be useful at all, but it's it's very limited in value use if you don't plan to to not go ahead, like for, for, for predictive information. You're not it's not the sort of testing where you think like, OK, if you know in advance you're having a child with Down syndrome, we can be better prepared in the um, room when that child is born. Right. But that's a part of your medical care. You're not paying out of pocket to get that testing. And so you're asking a lot. I don't know. It's complicated what you're asking people to do. And it's hard not to have that conversation and have that be good care, especially in a situation where abortion is not an option available to a lot of people. Not just that they don't want it, but it's not yeah. an option available to them. I mean, uncomf- discomfort to sort of tell people. Mm-hmm. I-, I do think the advice we should be given is document less. But I'm very, very uncomfortable with it. Yeah. I, I mean, I guess the other extreme, another option, although it's not going to happen overnight, would be to to simply say like this: this panel of testing is is kind of standard. We do all this stuff usually. Is there anything that you don't want? And then it doesn't require any specific information about why a test is being done, other than it's sort of standard of care. Yeah. Michelle doesn't have an endless amount of time to get her out of here. So I'm not going to argue with that on the con. On the, on the, it's actually a real big issue in the field about routinization and the idea of not making all these tests routine for people and really giving them the genuine chance to check out. But I know it's not your your field. And I want to get your I want to move on to something else where I'm really interested to get your information, because I think this is also of concern, not just to people who work in abortion unfriendly states, This was something that was raised in an article I read recently and shared with you 
that is pertinent to people who work in abortion sanctuary states where people might be traveling in to get abortion care from other states. And I'm afraid I'm going to murder her name, but there was a, a preprint, so this isn't published yet, apologies, by Carlene Zubritsky, I hope I pronounced that right, Professor Zubritsky, on interoper- interoperability rules. And uh, she says that HIPAA rules not only permit, but in many cases require the doctor to share what's in the electronic medical record with another practitioner uh, who you go to next. They're looking for your health records. They get all of your health records and that there's no carve out for abortion care. So that if you get an abortion in Connecticut and then you go to a to a GP in Texas, that person who may be subject to all sorts of rules about reporting uh, gets information on the abortion you had in Connecticut. So to your knowledge, is that correct? So I think it correctly describes a thing that could happen. Um, you know, I actually have had a lot of inquiries from the bioinformatics community about how they need to be adapting EHRs to help protect patients uh, from information sharing. And and what this article is talking about, you know, is is that the, the, the scenario, I guess, would be, um, you know, I live here in California and I, I, um, I have an abortion and then I move to Missouri and my new PCP in Missouri you know, gets all my medical records transferred over there and doesn't have to ask me permission for that, and then spots this aspect of my medical history, and then um, and then something, and then I'm prosecuted in Missouri. It's the and then something that puzzled me a little bit about this article because it's not really clear to me what that something is. Well, I, mean, I, I thought it was a little different. I thought as you're you're a citizen, uh, you live in Missouri. And you travel to California for that care. And Missouri but, has has now passed a hypothetical law that says that even if you get the abortion out of Missouri. But even or, so, there or, not- or if somebody helped you arrange that, maybe a more likely thing, right? Because most of these laws don't penalize the pregnant person, but anyone who assists them. But there would still have to be something that required the Missouri physician who received the, these records to to narc out the patient. And, um, you know, I'm not really aware of such an obligation. Uh, I may be wrong about that, and it may be changing (laughs) daily. That would not shock me. But, um, you know, states have, um, most states require that abortions be be reported by healthcare facilities, you know, for surveillance purposes, statistical purposes. But I'm not aware of any that require a physician under those circumstances to, like, affirmatively report and I believe HIPAA does preclude a provider from affirmatively reporting it. And indeed, recent guidance from the Federal Office of Civil Rights interprets HIPAA in that way, that it, although it, it does not shield you from having to comply with an investigative demand, it does not authorize you to take it upon yourself to make a report of behavior that occurred illegally in your own state or in another state. So quite apart from whether this physician lived in a state that even allowed uh, or reached out-of-state abortions, which is would be very rare and is going to be hotly legally contested, I, the, the piece that seems unlikely to me is, is that this record would now be transmitted to law enforcement. So, you know, I hope I'm right that that's a fairly exotic scenario. Um, 
it's possible. Is it on my like top 10 list of legal concerns right now? No. Okay. I know you're, you're anxious to go. So two more questions. One uh, with regard to an, uh, an article, which actually uh, you had tweeted about. So I saw it. Um, a recent call for professional organizations to discuss supporting civil disobedience where the law puts patients' health at risk. Do you agree with that? That that's conversations that should be You know, be I haven't. So, so the question is whether physicians have some sort of ethical obligation, either, you know, qua physicians in their, in their professional capacity, stemming from their professional role, or more generally as a human, um, to to resist uh, in a way that um, pushes the boundary of the law or, or breaks the boundary of the law and put themselves at, at personal risk of criminal prosecution. You know, I haven't made up my mind about that. Um, and and it could conceivably be context dependent, you know, i.e. relate to the specific clinical situation that the physician has to respond to, how urgent it is, you know, what the consequences will be for this particular patient if, if the physician doesn't resist. Um, but I think it, it's unfortunate that, that we've gotten here so quickly talking about the obligations of frontline physicians to break the law. I think uh, before we get there, I would like us to have a more deep conversation about the obligation of the institutions that uh, employ and, and enshrine those physicians in their clinical practices to resist and and also to protect those frontline physicians because the as institutions they're far less vulnerable than the individuals within them. I think that it's tremendously reassuring to clinicians when they know that their institutions is behind them and is going to pay legal fees, is going to fight for them, is going to get them the best lawyers in the event that something happens. And I don't think most people have that feeling of reassurance right now. So. I'd rather talk about the resistance obligations of facilities now before we kind of get down to the frontline OB. Yeah, so much, because I think while you might applaud the bravery of an individual who either defied a law they thought was terrible or took a risk in a where the law was questionable, or even like that uh, doctor in Indiana followed the law but embraced the attacks that followed, um, on behalf of the work she was doing. I'm um, sorry, that, that I'm, when I'm referring to the doctor in Indiana who treated... Dr. Caitlin Bernard, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a uh, rape victim and was ridiculously attacked by uh, people suggesting that she had broken the law herself when in fact she had not. Um, so, so, so much credit to her for putting herself forward and taking what she knew was coming, but it shouldn't be a requirement of the job. Like, like not everybody who signs up is in a position to do that. And also, we don't want all of our frontline health professionals spending their days writing op-eds, right? Like, like they should be practicing what they're what they're there to do, and uh, they shouldn't really have to worry about whether or not they're going to go to jail or pay giant fines to do it. But um, what worries me, actually, is, you know, I saw, uh, what was it? Which state was it? Um, maybe Montana, where the Planned Parenthood, state Planned Parenthood office, took, told all the Planned Parenthood centers in Montana that they should not give medical abortions to anybody coming from a state where there was a trigger law making abortion illegal. And it was sort of like preemptively, it's like, we don't want any trouble here. And I think... 
I think it's a real worry that doctors will not only follow the law, okay, when the laws are terrible, but also sort of like preemptively roll over and be like, I'm going to stay a million miles away from this. I think that's actually a much bigger concern. And it's a concern with genetic counselors, too. Um, and one solution, I think, is just what you said, which is institutional legal advice. Well, you know, the problem is, I agree with you 100%, but the problem is that often the source of those kinds of don't, don't come here edicts is the institution's legal counsel. You know, and, and this is something every lawyer learns in law school is that, you, you know, you have a dual mission to your client. One is to help the client minimize legal risk. And the second is to help the client achieve its mission. And too often, I think hospital and university counsel forget the second part, or maybe to be fair to them, they're not really evaluated on the basis of their performance on the second part. You know, they get in trouble when the institution gets sued or gets in the newspaper for doing something bad. They don't get much recognition when everything goes well and patients get good care. Uh, you know, that just that's that's this that is sort of the silent uh, the silent part of their jobs when when things go right. So it's understandable that the advice of legal counsel in many many situations is like let's keep a low profile. We don't need to stick our neck out here. And it's been a, a bugaboo of mine for a long time because I've seen it over and over. Um, so so this is an area for moral leadership uh, um, by institutions and by their attorneys, by the legal profession. It's interesting. Two students of mine over the last year did a project where they interviewed prenatal genetic counselors working in abortion unfriendly states across the United States. And uh, they did 11 long interviews with counselors in Texas. And really the biggest takeaway that we were, didn't expect to see, one of them, was how much what helped was institutional uh, support and legal advice. Uh, that the, the handful of places where they'd gotten behind them and they said, like, this is the law, this is how we see it, operate within these rules and we will back you up. People were comfortable and they were able to do their job. And when they didn't have that, they were just it was too uncomfortable and they were just sort of backing away from all aspects of their job. So I do think it's really important, but I don't know if it's going to happen. Yeah, 100 percent. So I think best case scenario is that we see um, or hear more reports of clinical departments forming committees with legal counsel to work out a set of policies and SOPs for when things go south and one of the clinicians is getting into trouble. I think that's happening in some places, but probably not as often as we'd like. That sounds like a tagline for the entire, I don't know, decade. <laughs> not as often as we would like. <laughs> so we're we're a few minutes over and I'm going to wrap things up. Uh, pleasure to talk to you. Really nice to meet you. Thanks. Thanks so much for coming to offer your uh, advice and guidance and information on this topic. It was a pleasure to talk to you, even on a somewhat depressing subject. Well, thanks again for having me and, uh, um, and for getting me to think about genetic counselors, which I think are, are not the group of clinicians that gets talked about the most when thinking about the adverse implications of DOBS for clinical practice, but I think in many ways are facing some of the hardest problems, especially when it comes to clinical documentation. So thank you. With documentation and also right in there with logistics and scheduling. I mean, genetic counselors are often the people who are literally holding people's hands and helping them schedule uh, terminations 
uh, after a, a genetic finding or a, a, you said helping, but don't you mean abetting? <laughs> yeah, yeah, little we're the little Satans out there. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Thanks again for having me. And thanks to you guys for listening. I'm pretty sure this won't be the last show on this particular topic that we will be doing. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye. Today's podcast is brought to you by Invitae. When the question is genetics, the answer is Invitae.